It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. Adam Bond. He's the legal counsel at the Native Women's Association of Canada. And Mr. Bond is here to talk to us uh, about the passing of Bill 2. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So what can you tell us about the background of this, first of all? Uh, yeah, well, so the background is, is crucial here. Uh, for really understanding the implications for uh, Indigenous peoples and for uh, people outside of uh, the province of Manitoba in general. Uh, So what we're talking about is uh, Manitoba's budget bill that was passed on November 6th, um, Bill 2. Uh, And specifically, the issue here um, has to do with the Pallister government's attempt to prevent any actions against the province related to money that it withheld from children that were in government care between the years of uh, 2005 and, tw- and, and 2019. Uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, funds under the, uh, the children's special allowance. Right? And so uh, the children's special allowance is actually a federal Bill, right. So this is this is an act that was passed by Parliament that said that the monies that are being provided from uh, the government of Canada must be used exclusively uh, for the care of children that are that are in government care, such as such as foster children. Uh, however, uh, between 2005 and 2019, the Manitoba government was withholding these CSA funds uh, and it looks as though it was using those those monies within its its the province's general coffers. Mm. All right. And so the, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs estimates that uh, the province has withheld about $338 million worth of these funds that, that should have been distributed to children. And now uh, I think some people might be asking, well, well what does this have to do uh, with Indigenous peoples? Why is this an Indigenous issue? And and, and that's where the context come in, comes in. It's, it's really important that we understand that in the Manitoba care system, the vast majority of children are indigenous. We're mm-hmm. talking for this period, we're talking about between 80 to 90 percent. Wow. Right. So what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the Manitoba care system, we are talking about dealings with indigenous peoples. Mm. Yeah, that would make sense. And so then uh, it does become an indigenous issue because of just that large percentage. Right. Well, not just the the statistic. It's not a statistical anomaly. It's not just that it's a large percentage. It's also that the reason that these children are predominantly in care is is a result of of colonization. It's a result of uh, systemic discrimination, overt discrimination that creates these conditions for indigenous peoples, uh, such as uh, poverty and and intergenerational violence and and whatnot, uh, that results in this overrepresentation. So the the high percentage, the vast majority of, of, of uh, children, indigenous children in the system are there directly as a result of colonization and these other systemic factors. Um, and so 
there was growing pressure among uh, Indigenous communities and leaders uh, against the provincial government uh, that they do the right thing, that they allocate these funds for their proper use. And, and that is that they go to the benefit of the children who are eligible for these funds. Um, well, unfortunately, it looks like the Pallister government is really resistant to parting ways with this money. Uh, and so in order to keep these funds for the pro- provincial government, uh, the Manitoba Minister of Finance, Scott Fielding, uh, when he introduced the provincial budget bill, this bill two, he included a section in there. He included a provision that attempts to prevent anyone from bringing an action against the province to recover these CSA funds. And in fact, to receive any other remedy with respect to the government's dealings with these funds at all. Now, you know, there, aside from the obvious ethical issues of mm. taking money from children in care, yeah. predominantly Indigenous children in care, yeah. and, and the implications that that has for the, the process of reconciliation, there are a few other uh, problems with the legalities of, of Bill 2, right? And so, for example, we're talking about federal funds. Yes. <laughs> this is say. money. Exactly. <laughs> this is money. This is federal money that the Parliament of Canada has designated for a very clear, unambiguous, and very specific purpose. There are conditions that are set on this money, and it is, clearly, they must go to the benefit of the the eligible children, these children in care. Uh, And so this idea that the the province can then usurp uh, the will of parliament, uh, you know, attempts to cripple the, the federal spending power and just take this money and say, we're going to keep it for ourselves. And if anybody tries to bring a legal action uh, for any kind of damages, damages or other remedies, well, we're going to say you're not allowed to do that. Well, sorry, but, uh, you know, every legislature has to operate within the contours of constitutional grounds. And if you don't have the jurisdiction to pass a law, then it's not it's not enforceable. It's not valid. Uh, so that, that's the first example. The, the other issue uh, is the wording uh, that the provincial legislature uh, used in, in this bill uh, for, for the Crown Immunity Clause. And it, it seems as though it's trying to legislate away the Crown fiduciary duty to Indigenous peoples, right? The, the wording of it says not only that there, there, there shall be no action uh, to recover the, the CSA funds themselves, but any other remedy, and specifically says for breach of uh, good faith, uh, for uh, breach of fiduciary duty. And when you put that in the context, right, the government, the, the Palestine government knows the context here. They know that they're talking about Indigenous children. And when they're using words like good faith uh, and fiduciary duty, they understand the implications uh, for uh, Aboriginal rights, mm-hmm. for, for the interests of Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. So it, it it is strange to me that they think that they can simply uh, legislate away these the, these duties. Um, so that's that's issue two. And then you have a, a third issue, uh, and this is one that's being raised by uh, the uh, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs uh, who, are, who are bringing an action against uh, this Crown Immunity Clause. And that is, you know, it's discriminatory. Right? Right. We, we have a charter. Uh, you're not allowed to, to discriminate against people. Uh, here, you clearly have an example of of the the, the province attempting to. Uh, deny a benefit uh, to predominantly Indigenous uh, children uh, in a way that perpetuates poverty and perpetuates these these biases against
against uh, against them. Uh, and you know, I think that there's a very strong argument that uh, the the uh, Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs can make out that that this is actually a, a breach of Section 15 of the Charter. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that comes to mind, as you say, these are federal dollars. So mm-hmm. what is the role of the Canadian federal government in this then? I mean, can they not, I, I, do they not have a say <laughs> once the money goes to the province, how the money gets spent? Well, I, that's exactly it. I mean, <laughs> the federal government has had its say. It's in the act. It's right. anybody can go onto the internet and right. look up the, 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 the act itself. They've had their say. You know, the question is, well, what actions are the, uh, is the federal government going to take now? Right, right. It's, right. The the implications here are, are really severe, and this is so we, we've addressed why this is an indigenous issue. But now you've hit the nail right on the head. There, we have to address why this is an issue uh, that people should be paying attention to uh, across the country, and that has to do with the federal spending powers. Right? Mm. Do do is the is the federal government going to allow a precedent in practice of of a province that is going to say, okay, well, uh, certain monies have been. Uh, distributed through uh, a spending statute from Parliament uh, for very clear and specific purposes and clear criteria. Uh, and, well, we're just going to ignore that now. Right. Uh, and we're we're going to put it in our coffers, we're going to spend it as we please, and we're going to try and inoculate ourselves from any kind of uh, legal repercussions mm. with the Crown Immunity Clause. Mm. And the question is, well, what is, what is the federal government going to do about sure. that? And I mean, they have an army of lawyers. I'm not going to pretend that uh, I, I'm, I should be advising them, right. um, but they certainly, I hope, are aware of, of the implications uh, that you know, if if the provinces are you know, if there's a kind of an acquiescence to the provinces, um, you know, usurping the will of Parliament in the in the use of federal funds uh, in this way, well, what happens next time? Yeah, right. Sure. Where where does this end? Sure. Um, and I think that that's a concern that, uh, you know, not only should the federal government have, but other provinces should have too. Because if we do see, you know, a, a growing pattern, if this were to happen, that there was a growing pattern of, of provinces just kind of disregarding the, the, the federal spending power, um, well, parliament's going to react to that, right? And how are they going to react? Well, they're probably going to make much more restrictive legislation uh, when they're enacting spending statutes. And that might not be good for the provinces. Yeah, um, and sure. it might not even be good for, for the, the, the policies and programs that, the, that those federal dollars are going towards because the reality is that provinces are often in the best position uh, to allocate funds a, a, as necessary. And, and it it's, it would be unfortunate if, uh, you know, there was a change in this relationship between the, the, the federal government and the provinces where there was kind of uh, more restrictive uh, conditions that were placed on, uh, on these federal funds. I think it's really damaging. You know, first and foremost, it's, it's really upsetting that uh, the Manitoba, the government of Manitoba is doing what it's doing. It knows right. it's wrong. It's passed the crown immunity clause, a sweeping crown immunity clause, because it knows what it's doing is yes. wrong. Um, and there, it shouldn't have to take legal action for uh, the government uh, in that province to, to correct itself. It's got its hand in the cookie jar. It's got its foot in a wasp's nest. Mm. Just back away. Just do the right thing, right? Mm. Um, but the implications here should uh, are, are 
far wider. Um, and as you say, what is the role of the federal government? Well, I, I certainly hope uh, that they are going to, uh, to, to take some kind of stance, to take some kind of action to ensure that these federal funds, uh, these federal funds with a, with a specific mandate from parliament are, are, are spent in the way that, that they're meant to be spent. Now, Adam, you, you say that the, the money, let's just follow the money, comes from the federal mm. government, goes to the provinces, and in this case we're talking about Manitoba. The mm. money goes into the coffers of the, the province of the Manitoba, which is supposed to be directed to, uh, the, as you say, the, the special allowance for children in, in care, correct? Is that children's aid? Uh, well, it, it, it depends. So, okay. um, it, it, Technically, the money, uh, an, an eligible recipient under the act is, is, some, is an agency, right? Okay. So that can be a provincial agency or a federal agency. Okay. And there are different ways that, the, that this money can, can come in uh, to provincial coffers. Uh, as I understand it, there, there uh, were some instances where um, agencies that were providing care to children were required to remit uh, these CSA funds to the provincial government, and uh, the provi- provincial government was was uh, justifying this, saying, "Well, we're spending our money uh, on this, and so you send us back the the federal funds." And and kind of it looks like a shell game kind of uh, scenario that, mm. that was going on here. Um, and you know whether or not that that is the case, whether or not the the, the province was you know providing you know, equivalent amount of funds and, and thought that, well, because we're providing you with provincial funds, you, you remit the federal ones. They, 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 the act doesn't allow them to do that. Mm. Um, so even if that, even if they are trying to justify it with this kind of shell game, they, there's, they, they implemented a crown immunity clause because they, I think that they very well recognized that what they were doing wasn't lawful. Now, and this has been going on, as you say, if I'm correct, it's about 15 years from 2005 to 2019. Yeah, so that's the that's the uh, applicable period under the uh, Crown Immunity Clause, right? right? So yeah. uh, under Bill Two, that's that's what they're looking at, two thousand five to twenty nineteen. Uh, so yeah, and so they've that's a fairly long period of time. Um, were there any flags? Were, were was anyone aware of of this and had been raising flags or trying to to uh, look into this prior to this bill coming out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was, I mean, there was uh, protests um, leading up to uh, the passage of this bill. I, as I understand it, there was um, it was being contemplated. The Crown Immunity Clause was being contemplated in, in another bill, but ended up in the, the provincial budget bill. Uh, and uh, you know, there was Indigenous leaders, the, mm-hmm. uh, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. There was uh, discussions, and, and I think the beginnings of a, a, of a class action uh, that were taking form. And, uh, you know, rather than kind of uh, negotiating in good faith and, and resolving this issue and, and uh, distributing the funds as, as they, they should have been, uh, the Palestinian government decided, well, we'll just uh, sneak a, a crown immunity clause in our provincial budget and see what happens. <laughs> it, it, it just seems very overtly uh, callous at the very, you know, top of this. But just it seems very... Um, yeah, like you said, it seems very obvious in terms of what they're doing, and yeah, and it, it is, and it's really disturbing. Like honestly, 
you know, I hadn't myself been aware of this issue until just, uh, yeah. you know, a few months ago. Right. Uh, and when I was reading this bill, I was gobsmacked. I just, right. I couldn't believe how blatant it was. And yes. it's not, it's not as though a crown immunity clause is, is you know, unheard of, mm. you know, they, they, when, when a, a legislative body uh, feels it's necessary to protect the government from certain legal actions, generally they do so in a democratically accountable way. Right. right? So they're not, you know, over, overtly callous yes, yes. <laughs> and, and 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 in fact there will there will be you know kind of qualifiers for the crown immunity clause right so for example um parliament might say well no action lies against the government or its agents uh for actions that we're taking in good faith or whatever but when you read this it's the exact opposite it yeah. says there's no remedy even if we did act in bad faith yes. even if we right. did breach our, right. our fiduciary duties right uh, and so it's just you know, it's such a sweeping attempt at uh, blanketing the, the, the provincial government in, in, uh, in immunity. And it's just, you know, there's so many issues with it. But the first and foremost, like the biggest issue is just the moral issue with it. Like, are you really going to take a stance right. against, you know, children in yeah. care? Right. Um, yeah, and especially because right now with the COVID-19 pandemic and the efforts of uh, Premier Pallister to try and invoke uh, the moral authority of his government to ask, uh, you know, residents of, of Manitoba to do the right thing. Well, where is your moral authority? Where right. on the one hand, mm. you are stealing <laughs> from the most vulnerable indigenous children in your province. And on the other hand, saying, well, please, let's all just do our do the do the, do what's right here. Well, lead by example, please. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, that, yes, the Radio Player Canada app, and then type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Adam Bond. He's legal counsel for the Native Women's Association of Canada. And we're talking about a, a bill that was passed uh, in Manitoba, Bill uh, Bill 2, and it was on November 5th, which uh, really, as as Mr. Adam Bond points out, is a horrendous attempt to, by the province to inoculate itself from judicial oversight of the, its theft from foster children uh, and is merely a despicable act of greed. Um, Adam, I'm, I'm wondering, first of all, what is your role and how is the Native Women's Association involved in, in this? So uh, the Native Women's Association is a, a national indigenous organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were incorporated in uh, 1974, I believe. And uh, we uh, advocate on behalf of indigenous women, mm-hmm. uh, First Nation, Métis, indigenous women across Canada on a, a wide range of issues. Um, and uh, our role, my role specifically with respect to this is uh, many of my files focus on uh, indigenous rights and environmental justice. And so uh, when we see these kind of um, issues that arise, it's important that we uh, kind of use our position to put a spotlight on them, to uh, counter those those kind of uh 
well, I mean, just the, the, the ridiculous attempt by the provincial government here to, to take money from uh, Indigenous children. Uh, and so our, our role is, is to advocate on, on behalf of uh, Indigenous women and their families. Hmm. That's, that's what we're doing here. Okay. Now, Adam, you, you pointed out that the, uh, um, one of the organizations, uh, I think it was the chiefs that point out that they estimate about $338 million is what we're looking at. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Assembly of First Nation, uh, sorry, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs mm. has um, ha- has uh, brought an application uh, in Manitoba that's seeking to uh, overturn the, the, these provisions mm. of Bill Two, um, and uh, from some of their statements uh, that they've made, uh, there it looks as though uh, the amount from this 2005 to 20. Uh, 19 amount that the province had taken uh, was was $338 million. Now, as you say, even if Manitoba says, well, we've taken the money out of our own general pocket uh, in that same amount to invest back into these associations that are there for, for the aid of children, uh, as you say, they, they aren't allowed to do that uh, because of uh, because of this money being directed by the federal government that is specific for these areas and that they have to show that they've spent the money on that. Um, but even if they, they say, well, we have put this money in there from our own, our own general coffers, um, if they had done that, um, would, would that not just be, well, we're topping up what's already there in general? Wouldn't that be what they've, they've been doing? No, I, I don't think so. I think that, um, so first of all, uh, if that's an argument that they're going to make, then, then the onus would be on them to show that uh, they were allowed to do that. Uh, and it's the first step in, in that process certainly wouldn't be uh, implementing a, a crown immunity clause. Um, but what, what we have here is uh, the government taking federal funds under the CSA fund mm-hmm. uh, and adding them to their coffers and uh, now coming up with these kind of excuses. Well, you know, we provided money here. We have right. programs here. Uh, and that's just not the way that it works. And, and it, you can't just simply decide that you're going to redistribute federal funds as you please, unless yes. the federal act allows you to do that. And and the CSA act does not do that. Right. So looking forward, um, as you say, you've got uh, this action being taken by the Manitoba chiefs. Um, are there other uh, bodies such as the Native Women's Association going to be getting involved with, with the same kind of a process or, or is it going to be uh, left into the hands of the Manitoba chiefs that they've got and what they've got going or, or does more action need to be taken, do you think? Well, so I think that, uh, you know, we have to look at the different fronts, fronts of action, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so uh, the legal action that the Assembly of Manitoba chiefs is taking is a very good one. I, I think that... Um, they're they're using uh, the right approach, uh, but that approach needs to be uh, you know coupled with um, political pressure, uh, with uh, public outrage about this, and, mm-hmm. and that's really what we need to see. Is um, you know I, I know that there has been some media coverage about this issue, um, but I don't think that there that there has been enough. I, I think that, that it's great that that you're uh, covering this issue on your show um, so that we're, we're keeping it at the forefront of, of the public's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but there needs to be outrage, right? Because right. 
the best way to deal with this is is for the government itself to to just accept that it's it's taken a wrong turn right uh, and and to correct itself because whose benefit is it to go through uh litigation processes these right. costs to uh sure. to the, the assembly of manitoba chiefs to the the taxpayers in, in manitoba who's benefiting from right. this you know um and to to let the, the provincial government know that that this is not going away that that uh it's it's going to uh face consequences on all fronts i think is really the best way and if if the provincial if the Palestine government were to you know, genuinely offer to sit down and have good faith discussion, I think, with the Assembly uh, of Manitoba Chiefs and, and other interested parties and other um, uh, Indigenous leaders, that um, I think that that would be a great learning ex- experience for uh, the Manitoba government, for, right. for the Palestine government. Because from the, the messaging that I hear uh, from that government, it, it's not great. On a lot of fronts. Mm. And I think that they need to work much harder to have a, a good faith dialogue with the Indigenous peoples in their province. Right. Yeah, Adam, just before we finish up, you know, something else comes to mind, and that is that, and I'm not sure if this is the same uh, with with the, the money that's transferred uh, from the federal to the provincial governments. But if I were in business and I had a contract with someone, say with the government, um, that they they were going to fund me for something and I didn't spend the money on what I was going to spend it on um, and I didn't back that up with the documents that, of course, I need to show that I have done that, uh, I'm I'm expecting that the government would say, well, then give us the money back because you didn't spend it. Right, so it would depend on uh, on the terms of that contract. What 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 that contract says, it, you know, right. it could be that any unspent monies could be kept by uh, the contractor. Um, but in this case, you're right. Well, so you know, I need I need to qualify that there there is a provision under the regulations of the Children's Special Allowance Act that allows that uh, for uh, uh, for monies that were deducted and retained. Uh, that uh, a recipient wasn't eligible for that that mm. those those may be retained right, right? Okay. um but that's not what we're talking about here and that's specifically not what bill 2 says bill mm. 2 s- specifically says that it's dealing with money that was retained from eligible recipients and that the province kept right, right. and so we're not we're not dealing with that scenario here okay all right i just uh it just came across my mind so i thought i'd throw it out there so yeah. um it's been fascinating speaking with you, Adam, and I hope we can uh, actually catch up with you at a later date to to sort of get the latest on how this is rolling out and what actions are being taken and, uh, you know, certainly keep this in the forefront of people's minds uh, as it rolls forward. I think it's a very important issue that, like you say, uh, this should not be happening, and we want to make sure that people, the general public, are aware of this. Absolutely. Thanks so much, David. You're very welcome. And uh, thanks again for being a part of the show with us today. Thank you for having me. You bet. And that is the voice of Mr. Adam Bond. He's the legal counsel at the Native Women's Association of Canada. And we were talking about Bill 2 in the province of Manitoba that was passed on November 5th. And uh, we're going to continue on listening and finding out about this so that we can report this back to you, our uh, listeners, and we can keep people informed on this topic. That's this part of the show. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, David Moses, and we're going to have more right after this, right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, it is a great pleasure to welcome to the show, I have with me uh, two authors of a book entitled Cold Case North, The Search for James Brady and Absalom Hackett. Uh, Halkett. And uh, with me is uh, Michael Nest, and uh, he is a freelance researcher and award-winning author whose work focuses on mining and corruption, and he lives in Montreal. And Deanna Reeder, she's a Cree Métis literary critic and an associate professor in English in ind- and Indigenous Studies at Simon Fraser University, and she lives, of course, in Vancouver. Welcome to Michael and Deanna. Thank you. Well, I have to say that in reading this book, uh, wow, uh, it, it's based on a true story of, as we mentioned, the the search for James Brady and Absalom Halkett, and it's a true story, and it has all the ingredients for not only an, an amazing story. Uh, Michael, I, I think you you said something about the fact that you thought you were you were sort of writing this crime. Uh, book, but also the, it's it's a book about uh, just the the Canadian wild and and being in the north and and all those things that people uh, face uh, on a daily basis, especially in lines of the kind of work that they're involved with. That's right. I mean, for me, it was a real eye opener into society and life in northern Canada, you know, which I I really didn't know much about at all. Um, so of course there was the the true crime theme to it um Mm. but it was much more than that um it was really a way to connect with how people live their lives but also um you know the ups and downs and complications of society and how that's panned out especially for indigenous people um over the last century or so you know the other thing one of the other things you said about this was that it kind of changed your your opinion of canada or your the way you perceive canada i have to admit it did the same thing to me um, because I just didn't expect to hear some of the kind of things that you guys were looking at in terms of uh, this this case about, you know, and we're going back some 50 years or so. And it was fascinating to even hear some of the comments of the people involved at that time that, you know, the disappearances of these two men and the fact that, one, there might be something of a criminal element that wouldn't be so out of the ordinary to hear about you know in the north i just i was going wow that that really really surprised me yeah i found that pretty chilling myself to be honest there was this um uh like casual acceptance that violence uh especially towards indigenous people in the north Mm. was really very common and um, as an outsider, which I am, uh, you know, I'm originally from Australia and moved here only a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Canada has this image as a, as a very peaceful, safe country. Um, and I, I've got to admit, part of that really came undone um, when I looked at this and started to hear what people said and the speed with which they concluded that, um, you know, some kind of foul play must have been involved in the disappearance and, and the confidence with which they said that. So although we don't have all the information and all the answers, um, it took me aback um, right. to, to, to hear and uh, experience that response from people. Right. Deanna, you, you have a much closer perspective of this. Um, 
you, uh, you're the daughter of a Delphine reader. And um, your mom, I guess, said that, that she wouldn't have been surprised to, to know that UFOs had taken them. That's right. Uh, well, it's interesting because part of the book makes a reference to the fact that education systems and legal systems had encouraged, you know, Korea Métis people to, to be silent, you know, and, and to not speak up. But what the, the community I remember was boisterous, actually, and had lots to say, but they certainly didn't expect to be listened to by um, non-Indigenous people. Mm. You know, they didn't. And so and that's the, the, the real um, story that is painted is of all these experts who could read the land, could see what was happening. And um, for in, in the case of the inquest, you know, many uh, weren't even interviewed and weren't um, taken as uh, resources to figure out what happened. And so the idea that Jim Brady and Abby Halkett went out into the woods and got lost and disappeared um, because they didn't know what, you know, how, how to bring attention to themselves mm. was just utterly rejected by my, well, my mom and my family. And that's why UFOs uh, made, made a lot more sense than this idea that somehow uh, they tried to walk out of what incredibly right. dense bush. You know, of course, we can't get into all the details of every inch of this book and, and all the, the the minute things that you go into, which is fabulous because it really fleshes out the, the story in so many different ways and really builds up our knowledge of the characters uh, of both Jim um, uh, and, um, and, and uh, uh, Absalom. But, um, you know... It, 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 I'm just wondering, in regard to what you were just saying there, uh, you remember the, the community as being sort of a boisterous community, but I'm guessing that probably would have been amongst themselves and amongst oh, yeah. yourselves, right? Because because I get, you know, it's, it's very true what you're saying about the, the that breakdown within Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, society, the uh, reluctance to look at Indigenous uh, people any more than just uh, either drunkards or with no knowledge, and oh, they yeah they 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 didn't know anything, and they got they got lost. Uh, to have that notion accepted without you know consideration for the fact that indigenous people have been living off the lands for you know tens of thousands of years and would know the area like the back of their hand and would be able to survive in these these conditions. Um, really, you know, it does sort of say something about how how both indigenous and non-indigenous people are, are, are being perceived in, in this story and, and how it sets that up. Uh, but, you know, uh, you guys do a great job of, of giving us the details of, of both uh, James and Absalom and, uh, and their characters. And, and, it, and you know, the, the intriguing side of this is that you wouldn't expect, again, from, you know, northern Saskatchewan to hear about well, there, there was, uh, you know, they had enemies, and there was this possibility that, that you know, in going back to the fifties with, uh, with his involvement in the Communist Party, and you know, it really starts to flesh out this idea that wow, there's a lot more going on here than than you expect to 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 think about a story coming out of Northern Saskatchewan. I really have to also describe what it was like to go to Larange. My dad was in the military, so mm. I was, I'm a brat, and we would go up to um, Larange on um, family holidays. Mm. And 
you you drive all the way to Saskatoon and then you you start heading north. And back in those days, the roads weren't paved and and babies are shaking in the back of the car, you know, the gravel roads all the way up. Mm. And it really, um, you know, this whole idea of of cities holding, uh, you know, being centers of, you know, wealth and expertise. And yet, really, you go up to this amazing place and this image of Jim and Abby sitting in and we out of respect, we call them their, their legal names are James Brady and Alison mm-hmm. Halkett. Right? They're known as Jim and Abby. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking of Jim and Abby up in Jim's cabin and the cabin completely lined with uh, with books because he had he owned over 4000 books. Yeah. Actually. And in, in the archives, the you know the, the correspondence um, he had with different publishers to bring each and every single volume to him where he lived. You know, uh, there was no chapters in Larange, certainly not even a big bookstore <laughs> right. at the time. So you know that really this is the center of Canada. Not yeah. in fact, you know that, that in fact it was as vital and as uh, important for us to remember. Um, uh, you know, that's part of Jim and Abby's legacy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up that book library that uh, Jim had because it, it does give you a, a different perspective of a well-learned man. And you, know, you go into that uh, description of him. In fact, he, he lends out books to people. And there there are people that come from afar uh, to meet with him and talk with him about, about scholarly matters. That's right. This seems like a good time, Michael, for you to mention the um, sociologist. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, one of the the real finds of our research was um, uh, we met with um, somebody who had been connected to Jim Brady, and she had got through her dad a sheaf of papers that were on old fishing co-op um, on, on the on the reverse side of old fishing co-op meeting notes, and that's the kind of work that Jim had done. So he'd worked for fishing co-ops, and we know that it's from Jim. But there were about seventy to eighty pages in hard copy in a file, and there was this long list of every book that he had either read or had in his possession. And there were thousands, like Mm. literally thousands. So we estimate that there was around 4,000 books in that list. And it spanned everything you can imagine from world revolution to world history to Indigenous politics to um, the Black Panthers in the United States Mm. to, you know, all the classics of fiction. And this was like the, it was like the intellectual beating heart of Jim Brady, mm. you know, like laid out on all those papers. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a, a friend of Jim's had asked this sociologist to actually catalogue um, uh, these books and other papers that had come through. So those papers are all now at the Glenbow, mm. uh, Glenbow Museum and Archives mm. in Calgary. Uh, but it was this incredible find, you know, when we actually saw it, because it really reveals the, the breadth and depth of his curiosity about the world and his interest and of course why Jim and his little cabin in the north was such a center for people far and wide um, to to learn about the world and to use him as a bridge to for their own learning. Right and and with Abby of course he was a, a council member and he also was a minister I understand. Well actually he had um, wanted to uh, wanted to become an Anglican minister and so right. had left Lamange uh, and went down pro- presumably to Saskatchewan or to Saskatoon uh, um, and, and went to university um, and and but he ended up returning and so that those some of the details um, are sketched out for us but I w- would love to hear more stories about exactly why it is that 
Abby returned um, returned to work um, and not as a minister, but as a prospector, mm. because he certainly had ambitions. And um, everyone who remembers him remembers how intelligent he was. Mm. So, you know, um, but of course, thinking about the opportunities, I, I just need a little bit more detail to flesh that out. Mm. So we've set the characters up and, and we know something about them. And we find out that they're really involved with many different things, as most other people are. But you, you, when you guys were looking into the characters, uh, Michael, were you, were you surprised at the 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 depth of the people that you were researching in terms of what uh, what they were bringing to this? Um, you mean Jim and Abby themselves? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I really came to the project knowing very little. I'd, mm. I'd read maybe one or two mentions of Jim Brady from Maria Campbell's book, Half Breed. Mm. Um, so I knew of him as a historic figure, but I really didn't know anything else about him at all. And I knew zero about um, Abby Holcott. So uh, I, I thought what was most interesting for me is that when I first started to read the publicly accessible documents about the disappearance, they were really painted as these um prospectors who were so stupid they got lost in the bush mm. and it is just so patently untrue you know the more you look into and, and of course it would be untrue for anybody right you know we know that all human beings are complicated in their way um but some people are more complicated than others right and uh you know really um jim brady and abby helcott they um had this interesting mix of um intellectual pursuits passions different training backgrounds their involvement with the community and uh, once I realized that there were these two very complicated people here um, that really dispelled this idea of, you know, um, two simpletons who got lost in the bush, mm-hmm. um, it made me, first of all, more determined to really, uh, I guess, try to do justice to who they were. So I, I wanted that to be part of the book. Um, right. You know, I wanted to, um, uh, you know, really flesh out who, who they were, partly to make them compelling people for readers but also i thought they were compelling you know myself yeah um uh uh and then um you know but also really dispel this idea that they were simple in any way Mm -hmm. um and i think use use that kind of you know to be honest like silly silly thoughtless prejudice stereotype Mm. and start to unpick that stereotype itself right and say you know something's gone wrong here about assumptions um, and, uh, you know, what I think is bias um, that has led to an official response to their disappearance um, uh, that, was right, that was wrong from the, right from the start. Yes. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's in 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to have on the show Michael Nest. He's a freelance researcher and award-winning author who works on focuses on mining and corruption, and he lives in Montreal. We also have Deanna Reeder. She's a Cree Métis literary critic and associate professor in English and Indigenous Studies at Simon Fraser University. Simon Fraser, of course, uh, speaking of UFOs, I think it's one of the universities that is used a lot in film in the film industry for a lot of sort of a, <laughs> a, a futuristic kind of uh, programming, isn't it, uh, Deanna? Oh, and for good reason. Yeah. 
alienating field spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Uh, so it's a pleasure to have uh, them both here on the show uh, as their co-authors in the book Cold Case North, which is now available, and you can uh, get a hold of it, and I recommend you do if you want a good book to read based on a true story. Uh, it it is a very good read, and um, you know we were talking about the characters of uh, of James Brady and uh, Absalom uh, Helkett, uh, Jim and, and and Abby as they are, are called in the story, and you know as we get to 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 flesh out these characters and their involvement, um, we we do get this great sense of of who they who they were, but then we we find out that. They, they, you know, I guess as as prospectors, you're in there, and there's a lot of uh, opportunity, a lot of greed, a lot of uh, people that that are very ambitious, I guess, in this area, because we're talking about the p- potential for uh, millions and millions, I guess, of dollars if they find the right uh, 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 site and 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 get the right uh, vein uh, that they're looking for in terms of some of these. Uh, um, uh, 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 I forget the word that they use when they they stock them out in there and they go in and find area and they block it off. What's that called again, guys? Yeah, prospecting for a claim. Claim, thank you. Yeah, Just claim, slipped yeah. my mind. Um, yeah. yeah, so when they're going in for a claim. And then, of course, we get into the relationships that they have with the other people they're involved with. And, and that uh, brings up questions um, about the possibility of... of of why someone might want to have them removed. You want to, is do one of you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, um, we know that dirty business is a part of the mining business. It is in Canada. It is in Australia where I'm from and it is around the world. It really is just part of the, the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, if you start from that perspective, so my day job effectively is, looking at mining corruption in the mining sector and trying to do something about it, um, then you start by looking at potential mining interests uh, and look for evidence about whether there was any kind of involvement. Mm. Um, so in the book, I, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler, you know, we follow one of the main themes around um, uh, alleged business partners of the two men and what their connections may have been. Um, so I think we resolve some of that um, uh, we don't find evidence about some connections, um, but it is clear that there was um, there were close relationships between the men, um, uh, and also there were things that simply cannot be resolved from the information that we have, so they're unknowable. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, was there any? Did you find any evidence in terms of? Because I didn't see anything specific to this, and maybe I missed it. But um, to the relationship, because it, it was they were wanted to have them. You know, one of the things is to have them eliminated. But then you would think that those those people, those partners, would lay claim to uh, that that claim, and that you might see some uh, financial gain that they would have gotten from that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead, Deanna. Oh, I was just going to really introduce you on this point in that, you know, it, it, it Michael, with his experience of understanding and following claims, mm. reveals something that was not obvious to me about the, um, the difficulty of researching mining claims because they're of the lack of transparency. Michael, do you want to take that over? Mm. Yeah. So, um, David, first of all, you're on the right track. And I think those kind of questions um, about well, where, did, where is the money? Right, know, who right. benefited? And therefore, what is the motive? I think they're all spot on. And um, they're really good ones for shaping the kind of research that you do about this kind of um, this kind of puzzle. 
Um, so while we couldn't find evidence of, you know, some huge profit that was made from a claim that was connected to um, Jim or Abby, mm. what I can say is that the law in Canada actually prevents you from finding out who owns specific companies. And they do that deliberately to obscure it. Um, so it's, a, I mean, there are actually organizations in Canada that are fighting the government about trying to change that. So there's Transparency International in Ottawa, for example, who has a whole project on how to reduce or, or introduce transparency around what is called beneficial ownership of mining companies. So that means who really benefits from the ownership. But at the moment, Canadian law is set up so you cannot discover who the real owners are. And that's deliberate. I mean, it is deliberately um, made like that in the first place, and it is deliberately not being changed. And it is deliberately set up that way. Why? To benefit the people who own those companies who do not want the public to know or do not want it to be easily revealed. Um uh, what their ownership is. So this is something that um, I've actually had a conversation with the RCMP about, right. and it drives the po- the police themselves crazy. Yeah, because when there is you know foul play around a mining company, and that's very very clear, they find it difficult themselves to find out who actually owns the company. Yeah, uh, Deanna, you your uncle um, uh, Frank Tompkins was one of the people that uh, w- was key in this as well, in terms of trying to to steer you guys I- in a direction he felt was the right one. Absolutely, Uncle Frank. Uh, we book, we've uh, dedicated this book to him, mm. uh, and he did um, pass away last year. But yeah. he he remembered every detail of the story and told it to us several times. Uh, well, to me for many, many years, and then even to, to Michael and I, um, and so that our, my cousin, Eric Bell, who also is the third yes. um, who joined us in this research, we felt this strong sense of obligation to him to uh, fo- follow because he had, had held this story um, so carefully and didn't um, just wouldn't forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, refused to forget um, how important they were and how suspicious the whole case was. Right. So the search is really dedicated to him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, there, there's so many things in this book that we could we could focus on. Um, and and I, I guess, you know, the other thing is, they, they, like we said, we're, we're spanning many decades of research, and I can't imagine what it took to try to follow up. And, and, and Michael, as you said, in some of these things, they, they came to a dead end for you because either people had passed away uh, or you just came up to uh, – you just couldn't go any further with, with some of these things. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, the story is brought forward and, and right up to the last few years because you guys do go back. And you are able to get a team of people together to start and try to follow up, I guess, in part because of your uncle, uh, uh, Deanna, um, to try and get some answers. That's right. I think the thing that's been really heartening is uh, how important it was, not just to family members who remember them and miss them, but actually to their grandchildren. So we've been contacted both by Abby and Jim's grandchildren uh, who were so heartened to find out what we've done. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, when you think about the results uh, and in, you know, the, the book is sort of trying to summarize, mm. you know, all that we did, but the, the impact of the book and the, just the sense of validation of, uh, you know, descendants of these men who 
um, felt grew up knowing that they were missing and mm. and, and 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 sort of seeing them acknowledged. Mm-hmm. That has been really a uh, great and unexpected reward um, right. as a product of this book. Right. You know, the I guess the other side of this is in terms of reading through this, uh, Michael. You said it, it's a, a sort of a, a a crime novel you were writing, but it was also about the the Canadian North to some degree, and and, and you know geography, etc. But but it's also somewhat educational. I can tell you certainly from reading about what a prospector and what these people would do while they're in the wild, uh, in the in in a, in a set up in a camp to know what are the what are the ways that you would uh, if you got lost what would you do uh, what are the things that you would do to uh, protect yourself uh, if you came up against a, a wild animal a bear etc cetera, etc cetera. what what are those kind of things that you would do but there are all these uh, other questions that arise you know there's this raft that is built that seems odd because it's only big enough for one person and it seems thrown together rather quickly um you know, but but the thing is that they disappear, and that's what really makes this sort of look like there is something else going on because the, their campsite, uh, there's tea still in their cups. Uh, there is, it's only been used for a couple of days, the campsite, and then it seems abandoned, but they didn't take lots with them. But they have their Geiger counters, they have their axes, and, and all of that equipment disappears with them. And it and you know, in some ways, it does look like aliens could have abducted them because there's they're gone. Uh, you don't find much in in way of that. But it keeps coming back to the idea of the lakes that um, you know had they had they somehow been um, uh, you know sucked up by a lake. Uh, and and I was you know a couple of things that came to mind for me as I was going through this. I thought, gee, I wonder, did anybody look in the trees above their heads? You know, and why would they be there? I don't know. I'm just thinking of things as I was thinking about this. And then I thought, could they have walked across ice and fallen through, and and you know, fallen with the weight of what they were carrying, just just not been able to, you know, get back to the surface, and with the cold water, uh, you know, hypothermia got them before they had a chance to to rescue themselves. Uh, it still leaves a lot of questions, but we're not going to give away too much more uh, about this, but but. Certainly, you guys did come up with some, you found some new evidence. Well, I think we also want to just remind the audience that uh, it was June, so there certainly wasn't any ice that they walked on and Mm. fell through. But once the RCMP left in early July, there were community members who scoured that place and so uh, one of the prevailing theories was that, you know, maybe they had been eaten by bears. Yes. And as they say in the book, you know, it's it's one thing for one to pass away. It's, yes. it's the other for both of them to get, you know, have, have accidents. Sure. But then, you know, oh, and maybe even eaten by bears, but bears don't typically eat like Geiger counters and axes. <laughs> right. And food, you know? Exactly. And so. And, and the, the community went through and combed that island, uh, you know, and I mean that, area around the lake um um it, so that i you know i'm i've got great confidence they looked up in the trees <laughs> but uh, but i mean i think that's what you're describing what the reader feels as they're going through and that sense of what could have happened what mm-hmm. could have happened and that's just a taste of what it's been like for community members all the, all these years mm. you know david one of the things we uh, you know we really wanted to do was um uh, while we're very aware that at the heart of the story is this, you know, tragic disappearance, um, and people often said to me, "Oh, it must have been a very depressing project," um, which I can assure you, it was not at all, because yeah. 
realizing what these the, the two men meant to the community sure. you know really buoyed us along and encouraged us sure. so it was very positive and affirming um research um but um i became very conscious that i wanted to i wanted the reader to experience the kind of ups and downs of research mm. and you know the kind of you know logical exercises you go through and you know trying to figure out well practically what would have happened out in the bush if this occurred so we really tried to bring that to the page to bring the reader through the process that we all went through in trying to understand what might have happened and that includes in some cases going down rabbit holes and then deciding no that's not right right but in other cases saying bingo you know this is it and this is what we have to pursue yes um, and I, I really hope that we've brought that to the page because it takes uh, the readers on the adventure of the research very conscious of what we're researching, which is this, you know, tragic disappearance. Mm -hmm. um, but also the, the the positive connections from community that, that came out of uh, this project. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there, but uh, congratulations on the book and uh, to both of you, and all three of you, with Eric Bell as well. Uh, and, you know, and thanks for bringing this to our attention once again. Cold Case North, it's available now. And... Uh, you know, I, I really feel that uh, this has the, the, the possibility of being turned into something other than a book, if you know what I'm saying. And maybe that, if it can uh, can somehow be transformed into another medium, uh, say a film, because uh, I, I really feel it has that possibility in, in terms of the way the story has been brought forward and, and just the, the wonderful uh, characters and, the, and the, the intrigue and the fact that it's a true story. Uh, you even get into other things you you talk about, and we don't have time for that. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there, and hopefully people will pick up the book, and hopefully we will see this uh, in another medium in the future. But uh, uh, Michael and Deanna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They're the voices of Michael Ness. He's a freelance researcher and award-winning author who works uh, and focuses on mining and corruption. He lives in Montreal. And Deanna Reeder, a Cree Métis literary critic and associate professor in English and Indigenous Studies at Simon Fraser University. We've been talking to them about their book, Cold Case North, and it is the search for James Brady and Absalom Helkett. I recommend you pick it up. It's a fabulous read and a true story. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.